It's time for security now. Steve Gibson is here. All the security news, including a Microsoft Patch Tuesday update, plus an in-depth look at what the NSA is doing with its Project Ant. It's all ahead. Stay tuned on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 438, recorded January 14th, 2014. NSA's ANT. Security Now is brought to you by IT Pro TV. Are you looking to upgrade your IT skills or prepare for certification? IT Pro TV offers engaging, informative tutorials streamed to your Roku, computer, or mobile device for 50% off the lifetime of your account. Go to itpro.tv/slash security now and use the code SN50. And by ProXPN. ProXPN is a virtual private network that allows you to use the Internet the way it should be, anonymously and without oversight. For 20% off your new account, go to ProXPN.com slash twit and use the code SN20. And by Carbonite. Whether you have one computer at home or several at your small business, Carbonite backs up your files to the cloud automatically and continually. Plus, access your files anytime, anywhere with a free app. Start your free trial at Carbonite.com. No credit card required. Use the offer code SECURITYNOW and you'll get two bonus months with purchase. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security and privacy online with this guy right here. The only guy who could see right into the hearts and minds of the NSA, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Steve Tiberius Gibson, <laughs> working in a now undisclosed location somewhere in the Western Hemisphere. What a cop of Joe that is. Wait a minute, you're not using your Contigo mug, Steve. What is that? Oh, 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 oh. No, Contigo. Contigo's <laughs> oh, okay. right here. Oh, okay. I just got it. I just did a refill with I the see. actually I've had some tweets from our listeners who have thanked us for the recommendation. They've purchased the Contigo mugs uh or thermoses. I, did too. I love them. And yeah. I know. And it really it it sometimes I'll knock it over. It's not a problem because that it really does seal perfectly. Uh, you can drive in the car with it, and you know, and open it only as you need to drink. No, it's it's perfect. It's like an adult sippy cup. <laughs> it's exact, not like it is. It is. <laughs> you know, um, Wired uh, writer Stephen Levy, the guy who wrote, of course, Hackers, one of the classics uh, of the computer age, and also a book that I really like, and I don't know if it's as well known about crypto, called Crypto, right? Uh, which was yeah. a great book he wrote about 10 years ago. Um, he writes in Wired uh, this week that uh, even when, when when he did crypto, he really tried to get the NSA to cooperate and talk, and they would not. They refused. They just wouldn't have anything to do with him. But he just recently went right into the heart of the beast at Fort Meade and got interviews, in fact, even talked – to the director. they've given up. They've given up, basically. Well, it's like, he says wow. there's two reasons. He says the protocol officer told me that, that crypto had fans at Fort Meade, that they liked his book about cryptography. Uh-huh. Uh, but also, of course, the new, and we saw it with the 60 Minutes piece, the new uh, attempt at PR. But one, of yes. the, one of the things he, uh, he got from his interviews, and he talked to the uh, NSA's general counsel, Rajesh G. 
He talked to the head of private partnerships, Ann Neuberger, uh, and Richard Leggett, who uh, hosts the Media Leaks Task Force, which is a task force designed to handle the Snowden leaks in the media. And he even talked to General Alexander, the head of the NSA. But one of the things he came away with was the absolute hatred of Edward Snowden that everybody shares in the NSA. He is really viewed within those walls as a total, utter traitor. Yeah. Well, and, I mean, today's show is, as I promised last week, what we've learned from that amazing Der Spiegel set of slides about the NSA ANT program. Basically, what have we learned about the NSA's field capabilities? And, I mean, I do partly feel guilty talking about this, although, if, you know, I mean, that's out there now in the public domain, so it's no big deal. I'm just, you know, reading the specs and adding some, you know, engineering spin and understanding, you know, so some some clarification. But, and the fact is, we would hope that this is the way our tax dollars would have been spent to to create this kind of technology. But here it is laid out with all of their code words and their requirements. And, you know, this is how it works. And, and oh my goodness, I mean, as you're, as I'm, the, the, the beginning of this talks a little bit about, I mean, the, the beginning of our coverage on the podcast today discusses the two major big iron router companies, Cisco and Juniper. And it's just very clear that, that if the NSA ever has brief physical access to the router, it is it is forever changed in a way that favors the NSA's ability to to penetrate it at will. It doesn't look like they can do that remotely. So I was breathing a sigh of relief. I looked, I really read these docs carefully. It looks like that Chinese telecommunications company. It's is it Huawei or Huawei? Huawei. Huawei. Um, they're not. There's a remote upgrade capability. Unquote. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Which, upgrade. That's the word. Upgrade. Yeah, being used in a way that uh, wasn't uh, intended. But, but I mean, I, I can completely understand the NSA's fury at essentially having the, you know, the king's wardrobe revealed as you know completely as it has been. Um, we do know, apparently, that something's going to happen on Friday of this week. The Obama administration is is gearing up and is going to give a, some sort of presentation about what how they intend to change the NSA's charter. And and at the top of the list is is rolling back or changing the way this metadata is being collected by the telecommunications carriers. The, some... Some have felt that maybe it would be held by a third party, but then again, that's been regarded as just, you know, a window dressing around around the problem. And that probably the way uh, what what the what the people who've been watching this and caring about privacy are hoping is that it will simply become incumbent upon a major carrier to to archive their metadata for some length of time and then be able to respond to queries for specific individuals. And so the NSA would send out a blanket request for to all of the carriers for a specific network and some degrees of separation. And every 
every network, you know, every, every carrier would then perform a database query on their own metadata that they're themselves keeping sole and separate and then return that data for the NSA's uh, aggregation. So it'll be interesting to see. But today Is it your on- sense that these – as we get into this ant sick thing, you're, yeah. that these Der Spiegel slides are part of the Snowden cache? Slides. That's a good question. I don't know. Um, this, this, as I said last week, I wanted to be very clear that this feels different to me. This is, this is, sort of the interior workings, the 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 cogs in the system that that we would hope our taxpayer dollars are being spent to develop. Some of this stuff is extremely cool. And I'm looking forward to being able to explain <laughs> what, what what I've learned from studying that document because, I mean, it's just, it is really neat spy versus spy level technology. But that's, you know, and I don't even think that Edward probably had a problem with this. So I would say no. I think this is, you know, other leaked documents, but I don't think this is part of Snowden because I don't think Snowden would have had a problem w- with this this kind of stuff. This is, you know, what it makes sense for our taxpayer dollars to go to where so we where did, want. Where did the slides come from then? Uh, I don't know. You know, we we want. But, you know, maybe it's part of it if it was just all stuff he grabbed. But I don't think he'd have a problem with this. He had a problem with the the. The breaches of the Constitution, which he arguably felt was going on. Um, I mean, this is juicy stuff, but this is just like, wow, the kind of stuff we would hope is happening. And now we've got real details. As, as Bruce so, Schneier said, this is retail spying specific on to a person or a group as opposed to the mass collection of data that we've been upset about. Yes, for example, now I know, you know, the the oft-mentioned VGA cable that for $30 allows allows the NSA to somehow exfiltrate what's on the screen. I know exactly how that works now. And it's Ooh. it's extreme it's not like a Y connector. Ooh, it's interesting. you 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 beam a two gigahertz continuous wave radio beam at it, and it reflects back a modulated signal. So and, and it runs for years without any without any uh, uh, tending. So oh, anyway, we'll we'll talk about that at toward toward the end of today. We've got a bunch of stuff to talk about. Targets, POS POS systems. Point, um, uh, that's point of sale. I should clarify. Uh, well, one of those POSs is <laughs> um, a a bad and ultra potent next generation DDoS technology, which is which is getting a lot of press that I want to talk about. Uh, the growing size of the RSA Security Conference boycott. We got to come back to port three two seven six four because there actually there was last week the readout on it that I hadn't seen that I was immediately was brought to my attention by our listeners. So we have to talk about that because it turns out it is, in fact, a super potent backdoor. There's a new security tool on Kickstarter. Net neutrality took a little hit this morning, um, but it's not it's not completely dead yet. No, in uh, fact, I, I wouldn't mind talking a little bit about what that means. Yeah. I don't think we've yeah. really got the full story there. 
Yes, we will. And of course, uh, uh, a bunch of uh, random miscellaneous stuff that I think people will find interesting and what we've learned about the NSA. <laughs> well, we continue to learn about the lovely NSA. Before we go on, though, I want to show you what you can learn about IT. If you're interested in buffing up your skills, if you want to become an IT professional, if you, for instance, are studying for certification exams, you ought to know about IT Pro TV. These guys are, uh, I love them. They came in to visit and I thought they did such a nice job. I immediately said, great, we're going to, let's do some ads for you. Because basically they were in heavily influenced by, and you can see if you see the video at itpro.tv slash security now, heavily influenced by both the screensavers uh, and by uh, what we do here at Twit. In fact, they say we got the same cameras, the same switcher, the same microphone. We, we were very impressed by what you're doing. These guys are doing live and, of course, store and forward after the fact download video in the screensaver style of all the stuff you need to know for the certs. So, finally, a, a way to study, a way to learn IT with some personality. It's a kind of fun. They have a Roku channel, so you can watch it on the big screen. Of course, you can watch it on your computer or your tablet. The all-access pass gives you access to everything in their library. Hundreds of videos covering the CompTIA tests, the Microsoft certs, the Cisco certs, with more coming all the time. Watching live is fun because, very much like watching us live, there's a chat room and you can participate, you can ask questions. Uh, I really think this is a great idea. I'm a big, big fan of what they're doing and uh, I invite you to, and by the way, if you want to have some fun, go to itpro.tv uh, slash security now and check the about box uh, and read their bios because these guys are kind of are kind of characters, the people who are involved with it. They, uh, they're a lot of fun. Please check it out. Go to itpro.tv slash security now. Now, normally uh, it's very affordable, $57 a month, or you can buy an entire year. Uh, for $570, but we've got a really great deal for you. We're going to take half off because you're listening on Security Now. Use the offer code SN50, SN50, and you're going to get 50% off, and not just for the first year or the first month, but really for the life of your account, which is a really, really good deal. That means it ends up being uh, less than uh, $28.50 a month, less than one one big tra- you know book study guide. Uh, they're live now. Oh, no, this is previously recorded. It looks like there's chat going on, too, though. Um, really fun. Really great. Want to learn? We'll do it right, entertainingly and yet effectively with IT Pro TV. ITPro.tv slash security now. And don't forget the offer code SN50. Security now on the air. Another great way to learn with the explainer in chief, Steve Gibson. So. This is the latest possible second Tuesday of the month, <laughs> since we all know that January 1st fell on Wednesday, just missing Tuesday. You can't have a Tuesday that occurs any later than the 14th, which is what has happened now. And it's, it's interesting. It'd be interesting to go back a few years and look at the January Windows updates and see if they're all small. Because it occurs to me, it's not like Windows is suddenly better in January than it was no. a month Hacker, a month ago in December. Take the holidays off just like the rest of us. Well, no, it's not the hackers; it's Microsoft. Oh, because 
they're the ones who are having <laughs> oh. to patch to patch the problems. So my point is the problems are still there. We just didn't get many patches this week because there wasn't hey, much they time. They were busy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we have four sort of yawners. Um, it's you know none of them are critical. Uh, you know those we'll probably get next month when because Microsoft's back at work now fixing the problems. Uh, they affect e- each of the four affects various subsets of Windows, Microsoft server platforms, and Office. And so, you know, no emergencies. Update, say yes, reboot your machine, and go about your life. Um, uh, and that's it. <laughs> Although it is worth mentioning that April 14th continues to approach, that being 83 days away and the uh, expiration of XP Service Pack 3's security updates. So uh, eh, that's about right. A few few months from now, I think I'll be ready to move to Windows 7. I've made peace with Windows 7. I like it. Well, you know, it's about I get to, time, Steve. <laughs> I get to skip over the disaster that was Vista. And boy, we had some fun talking about the, I remember the the, the security architecture mistakes that, Microsoft made with Vista. Uh, raw and needless to say, I won't be going to 8 after 7, nor 8.1.2.3.4 or anything else. So. Well, the next one uh, we now know from uh, Paul Thorat is Windows 9, codenamed Threshold, and that will be 2015. So you can Yeah, relax. but it sounds like it's still an amalgamation oh, it's of eight. their... It's 8 plus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, they, I'm just going to be camped out on 7. I think the world is probably, you know, you're not alone, camped yeah. out on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They are they bringing the start menu back. So good. I that. hope they get rid of all the tiles, too. Oh, get yeah. rid of that nonsense. Just give me 7, you know, just keep fixing 7. It's just fine. <laughs> okay. So um, somehow last week I forgot to mention just because it was like it was too early in the in in the dual week cycle that we were catching up from the massive target breach which you know I thought I you were just bored with it it's just another example yeah, there, right there there didn't well there didn't seem to be much much news and even today the only piece of information we got first of all target did disclose an additional 70 million customers personally identifiable information. I like how the exploit grew. So it started with 40. Then they said, well, no, it's 70. Then they said, oh, you know what? There's no duplication or little between the 40 and 70. So it's really 110 million yes. accounts. Yes. Yes. And and what they're blaming it on, and this is where I got to the POS, POS terminals, <laughs> Uh, is malware infecting their point of sale Isn't terminal? Isn't that interesting? Hmm. Yeah, and I mean, and so that's that's clearly a targeted attack. Now, interestingly, within the same time frame, dating from about mid December, turns out that brick and mortar, as they're called, Neiman Marcus stores, have been reporting something similar. So. It's 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 not their online problems, but Neiman Marcus is talking about an un oh, you know POS we don't have hack? a size yet. Oh, yeah, oh, some well some some it's that 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 customers who shopped at Neiman Marcus for a period of about a month, somewhere around mid December wow. at their physical retail locations are wow. having problems. So, 
you know, there may be uh, a, a group of hackers out there who have d- been doing some reverse engineering of point of sale terminals. And uh, and then Lord knows how you got it in all these target stores. Um, I mean, uh, it'll be really interesting to see whether we learn much about it. There's just still there's a lot of there's a lot of reporting of the fact of this event. Um, but but, you know, no real background information that would interest me and our listeners like, ooh, you know, how was this done? You know, how did it actually happen? However, we can make up for that because there has there is a new DDoS flooding technology in town and it is nasty. Um, to give our listeners sort of a sense of, of the history and scale of this because it's, you know, denial of service attack or something I have a, a great deal of prior interest and experience with. The, the original attacks were the so-called SYN flood. S-Y-N, short for synchronize, is the name of the packet which is first sent when a client wants to connect to a server. And if you don't use the operating system's regular TCP connection mechanism, but if you actually generate these SYN packets yourself using a technology known as raw sockets, then you can send the SYN packets off to a server at basically whatever your line rate is, as fast as your bandwidth will allow, because the packets are very small. So you can get many of them in a short period of time. And what happens is the receiving server tries to initiate connections, assuming that all of those packets are valid. It sends, it, 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 it creates some state on the server in the server's TCP IP stack to say, oh, somebody wants to connect to me. And so it allocates memory and it kind of gets ready for connection and it eventually sends a, an acknowledgement, a SYNAC back, which is its own synchronize with an acknowledgement of this SYN that it received. And what happened in the early days is that without too many SYNs coming in, you just, just these fake packets, you would collapse the server. It would be unable to establish all of these pending connections and just crashed. So, you know, and sometimes very embarrassingly, sometimes it just kind of went offline and stopped being able to accept any more. And, and, and that caused a denial of service of that service that was being offered. So then hackers got a little more clever. They used what's called a reflection attack. They would send a SYN packet to somebody, to some other server and with a spoofed source IP. That is, they would would change where the packet, the SYN packet appeared to originate. So it would go to that server, and that server would would acknowledge the victim. So it would send a, that SYNAC, that second packet, that answering packet, would not come back to the sender, the, the true sender. It would go to the target. And the, the reason that was clever is that when, this, when the server that was that thought it was answering an initiation of, of connection 
didn't get an answer back, it would send it again and again and again, typically at least four times. Mm. So this was a bandwidth amplification attack. Right. You, you send a small, one small SIN packet with a bogus originating IP, source IP, to a legitimate server, and it would send four acknowledgments before it would give up. So that amplified the attack strength by a factor of four. Next, we went to a so-called DNS reflection attack, which has been very problematical in the past. The idea with DNS is you could, a very small query can generate a very large reply. And the two attacks we've talked about first were TCP attacks. DNS, as we know, uses UDP. The 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 datagram protocol instead of a, a, a connection. So you send a, a UDP DNS packet at a DNS server with, again, a spoofed source IP, and it sends a big response to the, it thinks, answering the query, but, but you've, you've placed the target's IP as your source IP, so the, the DNS server sends much more data back to the, the victim server. Again, a, a, a substantial bandwidth amplification attack. So now we have a new protocol in the game. It's, it uses the network time protocol, NTP, and it is also a reflection attack. NTP... Uses goes over port one two three, and you know it's built into Windows. It's all of the Star Nix OSs have it. Um, interestingly, it uses a thirty two bit. Um, is it thirty two bits? I think yeah, thir- thir- a thirty two bit time. I'm for some reason I'm sure there's also a sixty four bit component. Anyway, the point is that something is going to wrap with with network time protocol in 2038. And even though the Y2K problem with, you know, the year going from 1999 wrapping around to to zero um, didn't cause a huge problem, if there's any old equipment still that is still using the original 32-bit NTP, we're in trouble because in sometime in the year 2038, that 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 32 bits wraps around to zero. So, and that may be the the most significant 32 bits of the time protocol. I haven't looked at it for a long time. Anyway, so there the internet is covered with network time protocol servers. They're everywhere. It turns out there is a command which has actually not been supported in the NTP software since around March of 2010. Two years, well, now what? Four years ago. Yeah, update myself. Four years ago, nearly, the it was understood that the so-called monlist command was a bad thing to have. It was subject to abuse. What can happen is a 234-byte Packet. So 234 bytes 
in a UDP packet can contain the so-called get mon list command. You, an attacker sends that to any identified network time protocol server on the internet with a spoofed source IP. Again, with the IP set to the victim of this attack. The get mon list command will return the IP addresses of the most recent other network time protocol servers that ha- that it has had access to, up to 600 of them. Now, six IP addresses fit in a packet. So that's 100 packets. So first of all, we have a packet rate amplification, one to 100. It, the, you, you, the, the attacker sends out one packet to an NTP server and it generates 100 packets in return. But it's also a bandwidth amplification attack because they're maximum size packets. And in fact, this 234-byte small packet requesting a network time protocol server to, to list the 600 most recent other servers it's had, had contact with can result in over a 48K reply. It's a 206 times amplification. And unfortunately, there are the internet is full of big iron network time protocol servers. Many, many big routers on the internet have just offer NTP as a public as a public service. So they are very well connected and have very high bandwidth connections. As a consequence of this, what we are beginning to see now is 100 gigabit DDoS attacks. And the, and the key is, since you, you're, we're getting a, a factor of 206 times bandwidth amplification, a relatively small set of, for example, a relatively small botnet can be used to, to send these get mon list commands, spraying them out over the internet to known and identified NTP servers, which then innocently generate a reply and and get a huge scaling of bandwidth. So um, uh, this is the tack that uh, we're seeing uh, more and more. Now, the you know U.S. CERT has been talking about this for a while. As I said, this command was understood to be a problem four years ago. But as we know, if it's not broken, it often doesn't get fixed on the Internet. And it's the case that there will probably always be old iron, functional, never-touched routers with network time protocol running on it. It's easy to find them because they all respond to port 123 over UDP. So anything that scans the internet can find network time protocol servers. Then you send it a monolith command, see if it responds. And if so, you add it to your, you know, your attack directory. Um, this is, it's going to be tough to mitigate this, this, uh, this new attack. Mm-hmm. 
That's yeah. of course the worst thing you could tell me. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Because what now? What? How do you normally mitigate a uh, attack? What did you um, do, for instance, when you got DDoSed? You throw bandwidth uh, at it, right? Well, for example, um, what the early DDoS attacks used ICMP, Internet uh, ICMP. Command, I see. Oh, we should know that. Internet. Yeah. A management protocol. Uh, ping. Internet. It's ping. Well, yeah, it is. Well, but uh, actually, it's many different things. Um, Internet uh, control message protocol. There we go. Yes, control message protocol. Thank you. Uh, uh, ping uses it. Traceroute uses it. Ma oh. Many different. It's like low-level plumbing. Right. The key is, though, you don't absolutely have to respond to a ping, and many servers don't, specifically because they because it can be used as a way to map the interior of a large ISP's network or a corporate network. So, for example, ping is often blocked at the at at at, at the network boundary. Old school internet. Uh, gurus are annoyed by that because part of the original spec says that every internet endpoint should respond to an ICMP, to a ping, because it's really useful for like figuring out what's gone wrong with the net, why yeah. it's not working. I mean, it's, it's it's a, you know, the ping command is, is a critical tool in, in the, in the repository of, of, of commands. It's gone the that, way of that, finger, I'm afraid. As, yes, exactly. And so, <laughs> so, no so, so for example, if so, if somebody were flooding you with a ping attack, you just you ask your ISP to p please drop all the ping packets at their border that are that are aimed at you, and then you know they won't get through and be able to flood your bandwidth. <laughs> but the problem with these monster hundred gigabit attacks is um, is that it you you need to if if they if you tried to. If you tried to filter the attack near you, then 100 gigabits would be getting to the point of the filter and probably crash all the incoming links. So you really need a, a, a huge ISP who is able to filter the attack at all of the ingress points in their large network wow. before before the bandwidth gets concentrated down to a single location. You do it upstream where there's a big pipe. As opposed Precisely. to downstream, where it where it could block the pipe. Well, and I, and you can no longer do it by IP. You mentioned it, but you, can, you can't do it by IP address because of raw sockets. You can't do it. Uh, you, you can't ignore uh, sin requests, or you'd be offline anyway. So well, these are very so effective. Yeah. So that's one of the the if there is a, to to the degree there's an advantage. It's that this is over. This could be UDP ignored. Right, UDP okay. one two three. So, in the same sense that you, if you had to, you could ignore IC in, incoming ICMP. You could just say, okay, I'm just not going to. I'm yeah. not, you know, I, I I don't need, you know, external internet NTP service. I can get that from my own ISP or just you know set my clock correctly. So, <laughs> but but the problem is, it is it. This is being used apparently to blast gaming sites off the internet in in specific instances where it's 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 embarrassing to the gamers or to the 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 sites that are offering that service so you know another powerful tool um uh in in the hands of hackers it's going to get worse i've been thinking about that i was just talking with mike elgin about it actually but i think it's going to get worse because um 
you, what, what you, we've created, unfortunately, is a whole generation of people who live in their basements, who don't really have a direct connection with people. So they don't really understand fully what the personal impact. I'm, you, you think technically, I think psychologically, what the personal impact of this kind of attack is. And I think in many cases, these are unempowered people anyway. They're, they're whatever, they're nerds, they're outcasts. And so this is a way for them to get power. And and they don't really understand the the real consequence, real world consequences of their actions, and so as these tools and they're script kiddies, right? Because these tools are they're not building these tools. Um, I think we're just it's going to get worse. I really do. It was script kiddies attacking you, right? This there was no real reason. Well, um, the one attacker whose first name was Michael, who I did find and track down. Uh, was was certainly that he he didn't even know, he didn't really know who I was. He didn't know what he was someone doing. To, right. Someone told him something right. about me, yeah. and and so he said, "Oh, I'm you know I'm going to blow Gibson I off." I have the head. power. Yeah, and uh, and it's sad. I mean, I, you know, I don't, uh, I just don't know. I just feel like we're going to see a lot more of this. Alas, yes, I'm afraid that's the case. I mean, and it is the, you know the. The 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 beauty of the internet, the power of the internet, is this this notion of autonomous routers where we just drop packets into right. this incredibly interconnected right. network. They're breaking and they, something gorgeous. It is. It, it's a it's, like it's taking, a beautiful, fabulous yeah. solution. Um, but it it but the nature of it fundamentally creates this weakness and which you know which hackers are increasingly clever about support or about about exploiting yes kids you can tear the wings off a fly it might make you feel better but it's not you know you may see a beautiful flower and tear the petals off that might make you feel better but you've destroyed something gorgeous you've just you've destroyed a free and open internet well done <laughs> yeah there was a, there was in the actual book under the dome that stephen king wrote mm-hmm. uh I, I can't i can't give it away but um we're reminded of how as children some of us would would get a large magnifying glass for Christmas and it turns out that you know you were able to focus mm-hmm. sunlight from a large surface down into a small mm-hmm. spot and and ants kind of snap crackle and pop when they mm-hmm. are exposed to that kind That's of That's kind heat. of a spoiler uh, right there if you just think about it. <laughs> and I haven't even read the book and I have a feeling I know what you're talking about. <laughs> Continuing on. <laughs> so the list of security um, speakers who have have oh. formally announced that they're going to boycott <sighs> this upcoming RSA security conference at the end of February has reached nine and is continuing to count upwards. So, I mean, they're... No surprise. People are... No, it's really not a surprise. It's like... it's It'll be interesting to see how it actually goes. Certainly there are people who have strong have strong commercial interests in presenting to RSA. And so, you know, they represent companies that are saying, you're going, we, you know, we don't care. But, you know, it, there's also a community much more sort of the, the uh, uh, black hat sort of group um, who are, are able to say, Forget this. I'm not going to speak to RSA. I just want to show my my outrage at the idea that, you know, they would have knowingly, willingly 
allowed the NSA to influence them and accept money in return, if that's indeed what they did. You know, we still have no formal proof of that, but boy, you know, talk about a, a nearly smoking gun. Yeah. Um, one other little blurb crossed my uh, attention in the in the last week, which was that in another former uh, well-known ex-NSA, uh, really well-regarded uh, 32-year employee who was highly placed within the NSA, and that's William Binney. Um, you know, he famously resigned in 2001, so about 13 years ago, after 32 years being with the agency. Um, he was regarded as one of their best mathematicians and code breakers in NSA history. And in fact, he wrote some of the software code that's being used today to spy on Internet traffic around the world. Um, he spoke a few months ago at a at a conference in Switzerland. Um, and what he had to say, I thought, was interesting and hardly surprising. He sa- he's had, apparently from firsthand knowledge, said that the NSA knows so much that it can no longer understand yeah. what it has. That that's, is, it's that's cl- what happens. It's, you gather everything. It's classic information overload. And yet, yes. I think they know that. And the reason they do it is they presume, probably correctly, that, well, eventually we'll be able to figure it all out. Or when we need right. to, we'll be able to figure it all out. Thus, that monstrous data storage right. facility in Utah. Let's just where, save everything you know, in case. Just, <laughs> exactly. In case. Yeah. Crazy. Um, and I mentioned at the top of the show that uh, apparently Friday we we are going to get some new directives from the we the NSA the and the country. Uh, the Obama administration is expected to disclose what it intends to do in terms of of issuing some directives. So, uh, well, I'm sure we'll have a note about that uh, on this podcast next week. There was an, a really interesting piece in Security Watch, the Security Watch column of PCMag.com. Uh, Max Eddy uh, wrote on January 8th about, uh, well, the title of, the, of this column was what it's like when the FBI asks you to backdoor your software. <laughs> we uh, we kind of uh, we heard a similar story uh, when we were talking with um, oh what's his name the guy who killed his uh, email service. Um, oh, Ladar. Le- yeah, Ladar Levinson. Levinson on yeah. the triangulation. What it's like when the FBI comes to call and says, "Hey, would you mind if we just just give us the keys and then we won't have to bug you again?" So. Uh, a a female security researcher, Nico Sell, N-I-C-O-S-E-L-L, uh, was the subject of Max's story. And I'm just going to share two pieces of his report. Uh, I tweeted the the link to this uh, this morning. And I'm sure if you put if you Googled what it's like when the FBI asks you to backdoor your software, you can find the whole article. But he said at a recent RSA security conference. Well now, okay, it had to be in a year ago because they're around this time each year. You know, the next co- the, the the 2014 conference is end of February, so probably around this time last year. Nico Sell was on stage announcing that her company Wicker, 
W-I-C-K-R, was making drastic changes to ensure its users' security. She said that the company would switch from RSA encryption to elliptic curve encryption and that the service would not have a backdoor for anyone. As she left the stage, before she'd even had a chance to take her microphone off, and I was thinking, whoops, you'd, <laughs> you'd like her not to be miked anymore when this occurs, a man approached her oh, man. and introduced himself <laughs> as an agent with the Federal Bureau so of Investigation. Boneheaded. Boneheaded. Yeah. Speak into the mic. Uh, he then... He then proceeded to, quote, casually, unquote, ask if she'd be willing to install a backdoor into Wicker that would allow the FBI to retrieve information. Now, is this – people are hearing this through the microphone? No, uh, no, no, no. I oh. think it was it was, it was was just a, an aside. That would be that cool. Had, did, uh, would be very, Let me turn on my mic. So, would cool. you ask me that again? Hello, this is the FBI. <laughs> would you be willing to install a backdoor in your software? Oh, man. Uh, but for all they know, they don't know, right? They're, she's got a mic on. Yes, yeah. So, so apparently this is a common practice. Uh, um, uh. The story goes on to say this encounter... And the agent's casual demeanor is apparently business as usual as intelligence and law enforcement agencies seek to gather greater access into protected communications systems. Mm. Since her encounter with the agent during the RSA conference, Cell says it's a story she's heard again and again. Quoting her, it says, it sounds like that's how they do it now. She told Security Watch, always casual testing because most people would say yes. Sure. Most people are patriotic. I wonder, though, if that's still the case. We're hearing, for example, stories of of the recruiting that the NSA routinely does on university campuses. And there it's not the way it used to be a year ago any longer. Oh. They're getting an awful lot of flack yeah. from from students. Oh, who, yeah. I saw so, the recruiter was like chased off, right, by a mob of <laughs> yes. angry students. Yes. Yeah. So, so I skipped a bunch of this interesting story because I love this one paragraph uh, from Max. He said, it was clear that the FBI agent didn't know who he was dealing with because Cell did not back down. Instead, she lectured him on topics ranging from the First and Fourth Amendments to the Constitution <laughs> to George Washington's creation of a post office in the U.S. It's Ben Franklin, but okay. Huh? It was Ben Franklin, but okay. Oh, yeah, the article says George Washington, yeah, yeah. but anyway. Right. Uh, so she said, my ancestor was a drummer boy under George Washington. Washington thought it was very important to have freedom of information and private correspondence without government surveillance. I, think, so I can whether, just see the agent going, oh, God. Uh, oh, yeah. Lord. <laughs> so that's a no? <laughs> I'm thinking you're not interested. Would you like to have a cup of coffee then? Yeah. <laughs> we don't I mean, know. I mean, let's not project too much. This guy could have been just, you know, some dude who's come some doofus. We don't know. Well, well, I know some FBI guys. And I mean, I'm completely sympathetic to the situation they're yeah. in. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, the, you know, there are bad guys 
who are using this technology and using encryption. And as and you know, I, I'm not bothering with any encrypted texting because I'm just you know arranging what time I'm going to meet Jenny this afternoon. But <laughs> certainly, bad guys would be wanting to use this recent explosion in insecure messaging you know and in fact in response to my tweeting this article i got a bunch of people who said hey what do you think about wicker is it secure and i said i'm sure it is i haven't looked at it closely my favorite is threema t-h-r-e-e-m-a which you know you and i have talked about leo that's the one with the cool little three three blips and you get you know either red yellow or green depending upon the level of of verification that you've made about the other person's identity. Um, and, you know, I know how that technology works and I know it's secure. So, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to be laughing at our law enforcement. I recognize they have a legitimate need to, to solve this, you know, to solve this problem. And, uh, you know, it's tough. Um, and, and a lot of this is backlash. This is, you know, backlash from us having discovered that, you know that 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 our government is doing everything in its power to fulfill the charter they were given and they interpret that as meaning collect everything from everyone and and you know try to you know find the needle in a haystack if it's there it's amazing um i saw another little piece of of interesting uh miscellanea which was that the GSM digital encryption, which is of course so common for cell phones, was deliberately was deliberately crippled from the beginning. Its team of designers wanted to use 128-bit keys, and it was backlash from the British government that back in the early 80s that wanted to be able to crack it for surveillance purposes. So they wanted it, they, again, they, they wanted it to be good enough that individuals couldn't, couldn't afford to crack it, but, but easy enough that they could. West Germany, on the other hand, wanted strong keys to keep East Germany from snooping. So there was a bunch of back and forth, and the key length was first cut in half from 128 bits to 64. But still, that was felt by the governments to be too strong. So under, as I understand it, uh, pressure from the British government, and we talked about this once long time ago, because I remember mentioning this bizarre fact, the last 10 bits of the key are always set to zero. I say, would you mind terribly... <laughs> Just wondering, set those last few bits of zero, and of course, so much that more rend- aesthetic. That that renders it. You know, I'm sure that they said we want fewer, and the crypto guy says, "Well, no. You know, our algorithm we is must. 64. We've already cut we it half. 64, 64 bits. Yeah, yeah. And they said, "Well, just set Make ten of zero. them. You mind? Ever exactly. so, terribly. Just put them into That's- zero." Rendering it as a 54-bit effective. <laughs> Let's not affect, uh, f- uh, forget that really people do this because they're patriotic. They want to protect their nation. They want to protect their. They want to co- cooperate with law enforcement, and it's uh, not a not a bad uh, instinct. I think. Yes, I agree. It's a natural instinct. 
Yes. I mean, I if if if, if yes, they're on our side. Yes. It's not like the Ruskies came to us and asked us to do that. Now, port 32764, which we talked about last week, is such a problem that I have created a bitly shortcut <laughs> to GRC's own port oh, scanner. Oh, good. So people go so right to it. Everybody can check it. You absolutely have to. bit.ly slash port 32764, all lowercase, just bit.ly slash port32764. That will immediately check that port on your router. You need it to either be closed or stealth, not open. Open is the problem. Now we know because it, it actually had last week when I talked about this already been reverse engineered. There was something happening with GitHub where I was unable to download the, the file. It was saying that the, it couldn't deliver files of that size right now or something. Anyway, I finally got it. There are from the reverse engineering of the firmware. And as I mentioned last week, firmwares, you know, there, there's a whole there's a whole culture that is reverse engineering router firmware where they take the file, they 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 unzip it essentially. It uses LZMA um, compression, so they decompress it. And then they, they run reverse engineering tools on it, figure it all out. That was all done. And what was found is as bad as it could possibly be. 13 commands have been identified which will which will respond if that port is open, command one is they dump the configuration. It just, you send a command one to that port and it dumps this huge blob containing things like the, the admin username and password and the Wi-Fi pre-shared key. So, you know, complete access to your router if someone can get that. Uh, command two allows them to specify a configuration variable. Command three allows them to set a configuration variable. Command four writes any changes to non-volatile RAM. Command five turns bridge mode on. It wasn't clear exactly what that meant. Command six shows the measured internet speed. Command seven gives them a command shell prompt. Yes, (laughs) from which you can then execute any you know, Linux-style command uh, of your choosing. Command 8 writes a file. Command 9 returns the version. Command 10 returns the modem's router IP. Command 11 restores the default NVRAM, which, it happens, turns WAN admin back on. So if the user had properly disabled Wide Area Network Administration, as everyone should... Because, because why would you ever want that? Why would you need it? Yeah. The, yeah. The first thing that happens is you, you, you issue a command 11 to restore the NVRAM and restart the router. Now WAN administration is on. Now you give a command 1, which dumps out all of the data, including username and password. Um, and I don't know whether, 
restoring the default uh, non-volatile RAM would reset the username and pass uh, and username and password to the router's default. Maybe it does. If not, Command One gives you the username and password. So then you log in remotely and you've got full HTTP style, you know, admin access to the router. Command 12 reads some blocks, and this guy was unsure exactly what. And 12, Command 13 dumps the non-volatile RAM to the internal file system and commits it. So, I mean, this is the, the definition of a backdoor. So, again, bit.ly slash port32764. That's, as I mentioned last week, four fewer than exactly half of 64k32768 and so this is this is four back from that midpoint uh make sure you and everyone you know has this port closed you you should get back either closed or stealth if you get back open then you need to deal with it immediately cisco has issued a statement saying that they will have a firmware update for their affected routers by the end of the month in their statement they said an attacker could exploit this vulnerability by accessing the affected device from the LAN side interface. Remember that few routers did have this exposed by default on the WAN, on, on the Internet wide area network side. Huge number, like I don't remember, it's like 30 different models have been identified that had it on the LAN side. And so Cisco is noting that an attacker could exploit this vulnerability by accessing the affected device from the LAN side interface and issuing arbitrary commands, just like we enumerated, in the underlying operating system. An exploit could allow the attacker to access user credentials for the administrator account of the device and read the device configuration. The exploit can also allow the attacker to issue arbitrary commands on the device with escalated privileges. Yeah, the privileges <laughs> of the administrator. So um, this is this needs to get resolved. And uh, but mostly our in, our our um, listeners need to make sure it's not exposed to on the public side because I'm sure scans are already occurring. To, to find that port open, just as they were when we discovered that universal plug-and-play was open as widely and, and commonly as it was over on the, on, on the WAN side. Yeah. So that, that, this needs to get fixed. Do you want to take a quick break, if you don't yes. mind? It might be a good time to mention ProXPN, actually. Um, people want to secure their Internet connection from prying eyes. Uh, you've talked before about how great OpenVPN is for this. It's the open source, uh, powerful way to do it by creating an encrypted tunnel between you and your OpenVPN server. Now, some of you are, of course, capable of setting up your own OpenVPN servers. I presume those of you who can have. But many of us don't have the time or the wherewithal or perhaps not even uh, are not even allowed to do so by our Internet service providers. For those of us who want privacy, who want protection, particularly from our Internet service providers, there's ProXPN. I love ProXPN. They support both OpenVPN and PPTP. That's primarily for devices that don't do OpenVPN. You'd want to choose OpenVPN if you can. Uh, complete privacy. 2048-bit keys, 512-bit encryption tunnels, 
And because Open VPN uh, uh, allows you to surf the net privately uh, from your point to the ProXPN servers, you don't have to worry about your ISP and six strikes laws. You don't have to worry about, well, frankly, even geographic restrictions because ProXPN has servers all over the world, not just the U.S., but London, Amsterdam, Singapore. You can emerge onto the Internet in any of those spots. So you'll eliminate Internet filtering and geographic restrictions. You'll eliminate blocked websites. Their software for Windows and Mac offers advanced controls. And now they have great apps for iOS and Android that allow you to use OpenVPN on those. Now, normally, you're talking about 10 bucks a month or $75 for an entire year. But I want you to try ProXPN. They have a free version. But you know what? You can cancel any time in the first seven days for the paid version. So why not try it? Especially because when you use our offer code SN20, you're going to get 20% off. And I'm not just talking the first month. I'm not just talking the first year. I'm talking forever for the lifetime of your account. 20% off. That means ProXPN, when you subscribe on a yearly basis, is less than 5 bucks a month. Love this. Mac, PC, iOS, Android, BlackBerry. Try it. ProXPN. They now accept payment, by the way, not only through Visa and PayPal, but Bitcoin. For true anonymity, proxpn.com slash twit. You, again, use our offer code SN20. We really uh, thank ProXPN. They've been a big supporter of everything we do, including our New Year's show. Yeah. Which was very, very kind of them. Uh, really so fun. I know you've got some stuff that you want to say about this, and I'm glad. Um what happened was the news was this morning was that the Washington, D.C. Court of Appeals um, rejected the FCC's proposal for their implementation or their rulings uh, on net neutrality. And the uh, Boy Genius Report story was, was, you know, gloom and doom. But Tech Dirt did a, an article which explained that it's not as bad as it looks. That right. essentially what the D.C. Court of Appeals was saying was that the FCC didn't have the authority under the provisions that they were attempting to exercise it, but that they probably do have the authority in some other – like by taking some other approach. So it wasn't that it was dead forever – but that they just didn't ask right. The issue has been all along uh, an issue of jurisdiction, pure and simple. So, of course, we want we want net neutrality. You and I and anybody sensible listening to the show loves the idea that there. It really, I don't even like the term net neutrality because it doesn't say it. What it, what we want is right. no right. discrimination on the net. We don't. We want bits to be equal. We don't want an internet service provider to say, well, I'm going to let uh, YouTube go through, but Twit, I want to slow them down. We, want, yes. we don't want discrimination. That's how the net was designed. The FCC has in its mandate, it's part of their broadband plan, they, don't, they also want to fight for net neutrality. The issue is, and this is what Verizon, in this case it was a lawsuit by Verizon, Verizon asserted the FCC doesn't have jurisdiction. For instance, they don't have jurisdiction over Twit. It's a podcast. They have jurisdiction over my radio show. It's a broadcast. In this case, the issue is, is a broadband service provider a common carrier? So the FCC regulates common carriers, telcos, radio stations, stuff like that. And up to now, 
the FCC has not said that broadband, and there's good reasons for them not to say that the broadband providers are not common carriers. Even though Verizon is a common carrier in wireless telephony, they're not in wireless data. Uh. So that's what the court's saying. According to your own rules, you don't have jurisdiction. However, the court says the FCC does have the right to oversee the Internet. So they're not saying they're not saying no. Um, the court said that the 1996 Telecommunications Act, quote, vests the FCC with affirmative authority to enact measures encouraging the deployment of broadband. It even said that the agency reasonably interpreted the law to empower it to promulgate rules governing broadband providers. But, and that, that was the good news, <laughs> the bad news is the way they're doing it, uh, they don't have jurisdiction. Right. Uh, but the attorney who uh, represented the FCC did say, well, we know now where our jurisdiction lies. I'm still worried about the FCC because, you know, the new chairman is a former cable company executive. That bothers well, me and, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I'm worried that there's any... There's any thinking or logic to the idea that, well, you, consumers have a choice in how we get our broadband connectivity. That's absolutely not the case. Right. And that's I because mean, of the know, FCC, frankly, that, that awarded, uh, you know, in effect, duopolies, monopolies to the cable company and uh, the phone company. Now, in this case, we're talking about, broad, we're talking about uh, wireless Internet. Uh, we're talking about, uh, you know, Verizon is, it's, it, we're talking about cell phones. And even oh, Google, okay. even Google uh, said that broadband should be treated differently on a, a cell phone carrier than it should be on a cable company. The hmm. thinking being that there, there, there are some actual physical constraints to the bandwidth available on a cell phone, right? Because they have to get the data out to each head end individually. There's lots yep. of... Lots of technical reasons why it might not be regulated the same way a cable company is. Um, so uh, I th this is a deeper, uh, much deeper question than just this decision. This decision doesn't change really that much. It gives, in some ways, the FCC more direction about how it should proceed. Right. Right. It's, like, okay, strike one, try right, again. Right. And the court seemed to me, and I'm not an expert, um, to be supportive of the idea of net neutrality, the judge who wrote the decision said Internet service providers can damage players on the edge. Um, Good. So the, he recognized that there is a, a, a public interest in protecting neutrality on the net. Yeah, I think there's only one way this can ultimately turn out, and that's the way we believe it should. That ev even if it stumbles... And there are some some mistakes made along the way. I just think that the the idea of allowing an ISP to 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 discriminate in any fashion about the way you're connected to the internet is is doomed to failure. And, much and, as they much as they may want to. Well, and they protest. I mean, Verizon says, "Oh, we don't we don't want to harm the internet." But look what uh, AT and T's doing with their subsidized broadband plans. They're saying, "Hey, if Netflix wants to pay your broadband bill, uh, then we won't count it against your cap. But if Twit doesn't, then we will." And that's what I mean. Why net neutrality isn't a good way to express it. Internet yeah. discrimination is the way to do it. If you don't pay us. If you don't subsidize your our customers' broadband bill, wow. then I'm sorry, we can't 
you know, we're going to have to count it against the customer. So that's, I I do expect the FCC to get involved in this. The court, uh, you know, the judge further wrote, the commission, FCC, has adequately supported and explained its conclusion that absent rules such as those set forth in the open internet order, broadband providers represent a threat to internet openness and could act in ways that would ultimately inhibit the speed and the extent of future broadband deployment. They sent, the court sent a very clear message. Yeah. Don't do this. Now, in this particular case, you're going to have to do it differently, FCC. But but we're what? We got we're watching you, you broadband yeah, that was providers. A, it's good. That was, a, that was some good language. Yeah, it's yeah. a good decision. I don't think it's a bad decision. But it, but it doesn't mean we're done. Right. <laughs> you know what? Right. We're never going to be done. <laughs> so um, I have two links, which I just decided to make a techie bonus for our show note readers. Because <laughs> um, I don't know what else to do with them, but I just couldn't throw them, I couldn't throw them away. It's our uh, bonus round. It, yeah. So the first is, is a relatively easy to understand primer on elliptic curve cryptography. And this was written by um, Nick Sullivan, who is uh, over at Cloudflare. And so it's the, the blog.cloudflare.com. And then his more recent one, the one that really caught my eye, was very interesting. How the NSA may have put a backdoor in RSA's cryptography. And he says a technical primer. I, got, we, I like this Nick Sullivan guy. We got to get more. We got to get him on our shows. He's yeah, smart. It's, good. It's, it's very smart. He knows his crypto. He's got nice pictures with everything, and, but you know, there's nothing I can really do with it on the podcast except right. to aim people at it. So, uh, uh, anyway, so it's in the show notes if anyone is interested, or you can just Google how the NSA may have put a backdoor in RSA's cryptography, uh, and I'm sure Google will take you to it because that's you know that's all that text is in the URL. We should mention um, Cloudflare is one of those companies that provides DDoS protection. Um, yep. You run your stuff through Cloudflare, and, and if suddenly there's bandwidth. Uh, hits they'll take they'll take over right um i ran across an interesting kickstarter that i thought uh certainly some of our listeners would be interested in an individual is putting together a universal bootable windows password reset key oh so for anyone yeah yeah so it's all integrated into a neat – it looks like a little key, you know, a, a USB, essentially, memory stick. You can buy the software only if you want once it's finished, or you can just – you can purchase the actual hardware key. And the idea would be you stick it into any Windows machine. I think it runs through, through all of them up through 8.1. And uh, as long as you don't have full disk encryption, that would defeat it. Um, but for, you know, unfortunately, still very few people do. Uh, this allows you to to go to a screen. He shows some screenshots, which are a little unnerving. I've actually done this before myself. There was a uh, actually one of my Starbucks uh, regular morning friends is a school teacher who who needed some things done that her district was unwilling to do. Um, actually, it was just to get some of her equipment working. So we I needed I needed to be able to log in with uh, administrator privileges, but she was locked out of that. So well, it turns out <laughs> it's not very hard to do. Wow! But yeah, you can see it's just a matter of putting the key in, boot the 
machine and up comes a dialogue you select the account you want to log you want to log in as and and it does it for you mm. so anyway so you can just google password reset key um and there are it, 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 this is not something you have to pay for there are free like CDs and and software kits and things available to do it. I just think it's very neat that this thing will all be prepackaged on a key that you just stick into a Windows machine, turn it on, and and you're in. So certainly useful for people who are doing you know recovery and forensics, or if you get like you know who knows used computers that uh, that you want to be able to get back into before in order to recondition them or something. So I wanted to point our listeners at that. Um, Let's see. I just this is totally random also, but I and I mentioned this already to you Leo. I wanted to tell our listeners that the TSA pre program is an incredible win. I when I was flying up over the holidays with Jenny to Northern California, she had TSA pre and I didn't. And she was like sitting at the gate waiting for me to catch up for half an hour. Um it's it is essentially what it is is it's a time machine that sets you to pre-9-11. You, you, there's no one in the line because no one else is clued into this. Uh, so you go immediately to security. You're in your own security area. And all you do, there's no body scan. There's no physical pat down. Again, it's like pre-9-11. All you have to do is take metal out of your pockets in order to go through the magnetometer door and that's it. You don't have to take your clothes off. You don't have, I mean, not, nothing. You just need to be able to go through the magnetometer like in the old days. You can sign up online. I did. And in fact, when I came up for the New Year's, uh, for the New Year's Day with you, Leo, I already had TSA pre-qualification and I experienced this for, you know, b- both directions of my trip to Northern California. So, oh my goodness, even if you only fly like once a year, as I do, uh, to, to my way of thinking, it's absolutely worthwhile. Um, there's an interview that you need to have, and it costs like $85 or something, one-time fee to cover their expenses. They just need to see you in addition to filling out the form. And you do need proof of citizenship, a, a valid birth certificate or passport. You need more than just identification. Um, and then you can get this. So for anyone who's, you know, hasn't uh, taken the jump, how much? I, I just, I think it's $85 if I remember right. And how was uh, it, when we talked, you hadn't yet been interviewed. How was the interview? Uh, <clears throat> actually, that's tomorrow. Oh. I, I don't quite understand how <clears throat> it is that this appeared on my boarding pass. And then I half figured that maybe it wouldn't scan, but the little, the, you know, I got green lights at, so maybe they were able to do enough from the form I filled out. I filled out the online form, scheduled an appointment for like a month and a half in advance. This was after Christmas, but before New Year's. And I was surprised when I printed out my my Southwest Airlines boarding pass. It said TSA pre on it. And I was, you know, really delighted. And it worked. So I am because there's a chance it may have like been a fluke. I'm going for my interview tomorrow because I don't ever want to lose this. It is just it's just too valuable. It is and 85 just, bucks. Now, and does it expire or? I don't think so. I think it's a one time fee just I'm to cover it. the cost. And also to set the bar, um, I think they don't want, you know, they don't want to get flooded with people doing this. They'd like to say, well, it's going to cost you $85. You need to, you know, 
We need to see you, and then it'll happen. I can't explain why I got it prior to the interview. Maybe I'm in, you know, some database somewhere where I'm on some level pre-cleared. Who knows? But uh, I'm doing the interview tomorrow anyway because, oh, my goodness, it was a win. (laughs) I'm enrolling right now, Stevie. It was was a real win. Um, A brief squirrel update. Uh, I mentioned I'm still at it. That's what I'm doing. Uh, We've just been benchmarking the S-Crypt, the password-based key derivation function. You'll remember that uh, one of the things we're deliberately working on is making brute force attacking user password cracking extremely difficult. And um, so, again, all of the crypto code is done. We're, we're just nailing down the protocol for exactly how to, to delay the, the, the recognition of the password in such a way that GPUs, FPGAs, and ASICs cannot be employed in a reasonable fashion to accelerate that process. Um, and that's happening. And the other trick is we want to be able to, to have this be a, a dynamically adaptable process so that, for example, on your cell phone, even if you're if you have an under underpowered smartphone uh, and you wanted to use this, you would type in your password and it would show you a progress bar and take five seconds just for you to authenticate. The point is it doesn't you know, we we've made it take five seconds because we want a brute force technology that is, you know, is super resistant to someone guessing all possible passwords. Um, and the idea is if you type your password incorrectly, five seconds with a nice progress bar isn't too long to wait to, to prove to your phone that you are you because, of course, your phone, what Squirrel does is absolutely empower your phone to represent your identity on your behalf. So it's necessary for us still to prove that we are who we are until we get like bulletproof biometrics or, you know, some other authentication approach uh, to use. So that looks like it's pretty much nailed down and then I'm going to continue coding. So that's what I'm doing before I return to SpinWrite. Speaking of which, um, I just found, uh, actually this was dated the 21st of December, a nice note from a Ron Kerr. Uh, who's in Auburn, New Hampshire. And I thought this would be of interest to our listeners because many people are having very good experiences with SpinWrite in VirtualBox. VirtualBox is a free virtual machine technology that is also cross-platform, PC, Mac, and Linux. Um, And he said, Steve, I've stumbled upon something that I think others might be interested in but I wanted you to clarify something first. A little context seems appropriate. I'm a, I'm a Linux weenie, and notice that most of the directions for getting SpinWrite to operate within VirtualBox were all Windows-based. Having an hour to spare, I decided to try to get SpinWrite to run under VirtualBox on my Linux i7. In a nutshell, Linux makes it much easier to do than Windows does. And I was able to run several SpinWrite virtual machines concurrently as I did real work. As an experiment, I tried using the SpinWrite slash VirtualBox combination with some of the USB hard drives I carry with me to and from work. Normally, 
Spinrite doesn't see the drives, so I could never exercise the disks like you recommend, but the Spinrite virtual box combination saw it like any other hard drive. So here's my question. Is Spinrite able to use the same deep scanning techniques with a virtualized USB drive as it does with a standard SATA drive? I know in the past you have recommended that people extract their USB drives from the enclosures and attach them directly to their motherboard's drive controller so Spinrite can perform its deepest scans. Does VirtualBox's drive controller emulation actually allow Spinrite to treat the USB drive as if it were a native SATA drive, or is the emulation just tricking Spinrite into thinking that it's doing a deep-level scan when in fact it is not? I'm very curious to hear your thoughts. Thanks, Ron Kerr. So, as I said, many people are having success with Spinrite in VirtualBox, and in fact, it is a way to get Spinrite running on Mac drives, on Mac machines natively, essentially, because it solves the one problem Spinrite 6 has, which I've already resolved in 6.1, you know, in, in, in here in the lab, and will be incorporating into 6.1 as soon as I'm able to get it finished. And that is that the Mac uses a USB emulation that does not emulate the PC's hardware. Um, and VirtualBox provides a BIOS that solves that problem, that does emulate the, the hardware by virtue of being a, a virtual machine. So Spinrite runs just fine on a Mac inside a VirtualBox. Interesting. Um, I'm, I can't really answer Ron's question definitively because I'm not sure we're ever going to get the same level of communications through a serial interface like USB that we do with a physical connection that is that is something i'm i'm putting off exploring into until version 6.2 of spinrite just because i don't want to slow down the release of 6.1 any further so i'm not i'm going to get all of the the low level super high speed sata stuff op, operating both with the the older ide and the newer ahci uh hardware and then um, and, and release Spinrite six one like that, and then tackle immediately the the USB side. I'm I'm a little concerned that it may not be possible to communicate through the serial interface and and do things that Spinrite does for some of its really really like down to the hardware low level stuff. There are ways, for example, that Spinrite is able to truly read a sector which is unreadable um but i'm afraid that the usb interface is always going to just i mean it's going to be a it's a barrier that nothing could bypass um that it just won't allow me to issue those commands to the hard drive if i'm limited to read and write then i can't do the fancy things where i'm taking advantage of the entire ata uh vocabulary of commands that, that are available so the good news is you can run Spinrite in many more places under VirtualBox, and it will likely do as much as is possible for now. Um, and then 6.1 will push it further, and Spinrite 6.2 will, and actually 6.1 will eliminate any need for VirtualBox stuff because it'll run natively on the Mac and on Windows and, and Linux and so forth. 
Uh, I just uh, a couple of things. Five years on the uh, TSA pre. Uh, oh, term. really? Yeah. Wow. And I just looked at it, and it, and you have to be able to go to uh, what are these? Are they? They're not in airports. What are these centers you have to go to? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to Long Beach, which is the closest. The nearest one to me is Sacramento. There's nothing in San Francisco, San Jose, oh, wow. or Oakland. So it's not convenient. Wow. You know, Leo, I would fill out the form and just see if you get it. I, I got it. They say if you I have mean, a criminal record, you shouldn't bother. <laughs> don't bother giving us the, Don't bother submitting. They say no yeah. refunds. <laughs> yes. They, yes. Uh, Although... So, though you're able to pay with a credit card and you take it with you to the interview so you don't have to pay in advance right. and you know i got pre somehow <clears throat> i'll fill it out they say don't do it if you don't have plan you can't get to a center within 120 days so that gives me four months i guess worst case i drive to sacramento i agree i i've i've driven to sacramento that's not fun somebody's saying and somebody mentioned that they got it through delta that some air maybe through frequent flyer programs some airlines will facilitate it hmm. i'll have to look Um, here we go. Backing up. Carbonite online backup. I think before we get to Ant, you might want to know how to back up your data. Uh, whether you have a computer at home, you have several at your small business, or both, Carbonite backs up your files to the cloud automatically, continuously, whenever you're online. That is a great deal. Over 300 billion files have been backed up. More to, more to the point, I can't remember the number, I think 30 billion files have been restored. That's a lot of files that would have been lost if it weren't for Carbonite. So many people aren't backing up. And now I know anybody listening to Security Now is. Right. Right. Uh, <laughs> but uh, if you're not, maybe you want to know about this. And, and, and for people who listen to the show, probably you have friends and family you want to turn on to Carbonite.com. Access your files wherever you are. Just log on to your Carbonite account or use their free apps. So it's cloud storage, too. You can email files from your Carbonite account. That's nice. You, I think it's important to be able to check your backup, make sure what you think you're backing up, you're getting. And you can do that with Carbonite. Start your free trial right now. You do not need a credit card. Just go to C-A-R-B-O-N-I-T-E dot com. If you decide to buy, actually, do the do the offer code when you uh, try it out, Security Now. That way, when you decide to buy, you'll get two free months. As little as $59.99 a year, a year for everything on a single computer, Mac or PC. That's less than five bucks a month. Carbonite.com. Make sure you use our offer code, Security Now, and try it free today. Time to talk about ants. Okay, so my goal here, you know, last week we had fun running through the crazy, <laughs> the crazy terminology, which the NSA uses. I would almost think that they have some random word pairing software that takes, you know, two words like like you, you know, like as if you had a big. I think bowl that's the case. It's a of, code generator. Well, yeah, exactly. Except that some of them. Really do okay. It's like banana glee. Okay, that <laughs> it's not clear at all what that has to do with exfiltrating data from target networks, which is what it does. So that one and jet plow, same thing. But there are some where they're maybe just a coincidental naming, or there maybe the 
the person who requests a code word for their project is able to sort of say, well, it's kind of about this and this and this. And the selector, you know, helps you, you know, comes up with something a little more memorable. But we have some terminology we need first. Interdiction is the terminology they use for physical access. So anything required, requiring interdiction means that that they had to visit the hardware and like physically do something. So for example, as uh, installing that VGA cable that I mentioned at, at the top of the show, that would be interdiction into the system where, you know, they would, you know, presumably sneak in at night and swap the VGA cable with their own. Uh, nobody would know the difference. It all works fine, except that, as I mentioned, in this case, there is a passive RF, uh, ultra-high-frequency reflector, which modulates itself based on the video signal going down the cable, and it is, um, it is, it doesn't itself radiate any RF energy. So that's what's, that, that's, that's clearly where the technology has gone now. Uh, the, the ant documentation is full of diff, of these passive RF reflectors. The idea being that they can, if they need power, they only draw a few microamps so that the, the battery's own self-discharge, you know, that it just loses its charge over a couple of years, that's a greater effect than the actual drain on the battery itself. So they're, they're for all intents and purposes, you know, they run for many years without ever needing to have the battery changed, and they do not radiate. So, you know, all of the, the, the movies we see where someone, like, sweeps the room to check for bugs, well, that doesn't work here because there's, there's nothing that a receiver can receive. It's not until that somebody deliberately decides now they want to obtain information that from some, from some distant location, um, they, they send a focused beam of radio frequency energy targeted at the location of where this this passive re-radiator is. And and while it's always been running, it's not until it gets illuminated by this the, this coherent wave that is a non-modulated RF energy that it then re-radiates back to the receiver. The receiver picks that up and mixes the outgoing signal with the incoming signal. And Leo, you'll remember this from your ham licensing days. It, it heterodynes Ooh. the reflected signal with the outgoing signal. And what that has, a, that it uses the, the sum and differences of signs. Uh, there, there's a law there where you're, you're essentially multiplying two sine waves um, on a log function to get the sum and difference. The sum will be like of, of, of if you've got a two gigahertz carrier, the sum will be up at four gigahertz um, of, of the two. <clears throat> and the difference is what you really want. That will be the original frequency, which is doing the modulating of this passive reflector. And that's, for example, a video signal that is going through the cable. Um, then they have other technologies that are enumerated in this document that, for example, 
um, allow them to capture the audio if, it, if if it's a bug. One of these things is a passive bug. It is like half an inch um, in size. And I noted in there that it talks about its COTS, which is the ac- acronym for common off the shelf. And they specifically say so that there will be nothing tying it back to the NSA. So it uses just, you know, generic components and so if someone did discover it, it's like, well, you know, what's this? And there's nothing to, to tell them where it came from. So in these cases, they do need so-called interdiction in order to, you know, plant this initially. But once done, these things can run for years. They do not give out any give off any radiation themselves and of course if they were radiating actively that would inherently mean that they were consuming more power so this is this is part of the the cool architecture that they've got where the thing doesn't generate power so it can't be found and it will only generate a signal when it's when it is itself essentially being illuminated uh by the this this remote um uh uh, source of of detection. They call it radar. It's not technically radar. It's just a a, a uh, you know a, a, a one to two gigahertz beam of of RF energy that that th- this thing uh, modulates and reflects. Then they then the other term that they use is an implant, and implants can be hardware or software, and that's just you know something implanted into another device. They're big on persistence, meaning that it survives a reboot or OS upgrades and so forth. They've even they're, they're, there's even mention of their ability to to have a an architecture of exploits where if they install this in a router down at the lowest level, like down in the BIOS, yet the router's software, the OS running on it, they don't have an active exploit for yet. Their their persistence allows them to automatically reacquire access to the router if at some future point that router is upgraded, that is the, the router's OS is upgraded to one that they do have an exploit for. It'll automatically recognize that and then exploit that OS during boot. And it talks about how it's able to modify the in-memory image on the fly of Cisco and Juniper network routers, which are you know pretty much what glues the internet together um, at the high end. So these, these documents talk about, as I was mentioning before, this banana glee is, is a, is a, portion of sort of a of an exploit stack um in the work i was doing trying to understand this there were some term there i ran across some terms that i didn't know for example one was dnt payload and i thought well what is dnt so in googling for that i discovered that there was another source of of this information um a that, that that's been put together a a sort sort of a coherent document that runs through all of the acronyms we know of over and beyond what has been revealed by this NSA ant 
So I created a bit.ly shortcut. The bit.ly shortcut I, I created last week was all lowercase bit.ly slash NSA hyphen A-N-T. This one, the new one for another cool page, I called NSA ref. So bit.ly slash NSA hyphen R-E-F. Obviously short for reference. And this is this an incredible page of this NSA jargon. And through that, I learned that DNT is as actually a commercial company, Digital Network Technologies, that is a subcontractor of the NSA. So, so there's a, a commercial company that is generating these technologies um, for the NSA's use in doing this. And so, for example, this Banana Glee acronym says um, it, it's um, on that NSA hyphen ref page, a software exploit made by Digital Network Technologies, parens DNT. Some of this stuff is for sale. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I can buy for $50,000 somber knave, a software-based malware that bridges air gaps. Holy cow. Yeah. Um, in fact, one of these things, that I don't think it's somber knave. Um, I've got it in my notes down below, is a an air gap bridging <laughs> USB cable. Very, very similar to the the um, the the VGA cable. So this is just, it looks like a USB connector on each end, and hidden in the connector on one end is a radio transmitter. I don't remember if it's this passive uh, uh, RF reflector technology or not. We'll, we'll we'll get down to that in a second. But but yeah, you're right, Leo. I mean, and and these what are, you really want is to rent, not buy because you can't buy it. The Typhoon HX is a GSM <laughs> base station router used to collect call logs from targeted phones. You administer it with a laptop via SMS, standalone unit, a mere $175,000 for a four-month rental. Yeah. So who makes this? Who rents this? Is this DNT as well? So it's so, crazy. So, yeah, yeah, so all of this hardware, uh, some... Looks like it's. I don't know if DNT is software. It's see, they seem to be software people. I think the NSA has a has a bunch of their own hardware people because it, it it's looking like this ant division supplies the tau tao. That's the tailored access <laughs> operations. Here's um, here's the beauty part. You can buy. You can pay for all this with Bitcoin. So you're really <laughs> no. I'm just kidding. No, 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 no. That's exactly what you can't do. So, so. As I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, you know, how do Cisco's and Juniper's corporations react to the this clear, blatant knowledge right. that their routers are, are compromisable? I bet there's two reactions, one public, one private. Yeah, exactly. Well, and the public one is we have no, never and hold, never would hold, hold, provide any, you know, hold it, hold, hold. any any cooperation uh, will, willingly to the no, NSA. Never. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, and I, I think this is all behind their back. I don't think they've done this. I think, for example, in as I mentioned at the top of the show, looking at this, reading this very carefully, I don't see evidence of remote exploitation of, of Cisco and Juniper routers. There has to be a so-called interdiction. So, for example, the description of JetPlow, 
JetPlow is a firmware persistence implant for Cisco PIX series, very popular Cisco product, and ASA, the Adaptive Security Appliance, firewalls. It persists DNT's Banana Glee software implant. And so then, so then, so that's when I said, wait a minute, Banana Glee. So then I look up, so Banana Glee, a software exploit made by Digital Network Technologies, DNT, for Juniper Nets, for, sorry, for Juniper NetScreen, NS5XT, NS50, NS200, NS500, ISG1000, SSG140, SSG5, on and on and on and on, on, model numbers, you know, for another three lines worth of them, also works on Cisco PIX 500 series and ASA, and then another set of five serial or model numbers, series firewalls, used for exfiltrating data from target networks. So, so there's Banana Glee, which is this technology from DNT, from Digital Network Technologies. And then JetPlow is a firmware persistence implant for Cisco PIC series and ASA firewalls. It persists DNT's Banana Glee software implant. Um, so it sounds like JetPlow lives in the BIOS and is is used sort of hosts banana glee and it says jetplow also has a persistent backdoor capability that's another acronym pbd persistent backdoor that we also see throughout these it says wow. jetplow is a firmware persistence implant for cisco pic series and as i guess it's being a little redundant here it pers- uh yeah it is repeating the same thing. If Banana Glee support is not available for the booting operating system, it can install a persistent backdoor, PBD, designed to work with Banana Glee's communication structure so that full access can be reacquired at a later time. A typical jet plow deployment on a target firewall with an exfiltration path to the remote operations center is shown above. And there's a diagram. Jet plow is remotely upgradable and is also remotely installable provided Banana Glee is already on the firewall of interest. So now this sounds like I, I misstated it, that Banana Glee is the lowest level thing in the BIOS. Yeah. And, and again, so notice that it's saying that JetPlow can be installed if Banana Glee is already and remotely installable. JetPlow can be remotely installed if Banana Glee is there first. I'm just glad the NSA pays attention to interoperability. Actually, this is I, I was impressed as I'm running through this. Yeah. They, they 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 really do they have a the notion of a software stack of of these exploit modules which are interdependent and hierarchical. So if you get banana glee stuck into a router into its BIOS somehow, which runs at a level below the OS, then it'll create a persistent backdoor and that will then allow remote operators to install the higher level exploits 
um, as they are and become available. So I've got so much else to talk about here. I'm going to skip over uh, some of these. Um, it does look like, as I mentioned before, that this Chinese multinational networking and telecommunications equipment services company, they're uh, headquartered in Shenzhen, Guangdong, um, and you knew how to pronounce it. It's not Shenzhen, it's Guangdong. Shenzhen, Guangdong. <laughs> Doesn't but matter. But <laughs> is it is it Huawei? Huawei. 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 Uh, their big router, um, uh, and I don't I remember seeing the name of it somewhere. Well, the NSA project is Headwater, and it appears to install 100% remotely. Uh, the document says Headwater is a persistent backdoor, a PDB software implant for selected, <laughs> I just cannot pronounce this name, Huawei. Huawei, Huawei, Huawei routers. Forget the H's. Huawei. Huawei. Ah, thank you. The implant will enable covert functions to be remotely executed within the router via an internet connection. Headwater PDB implant will be transferred remotely over the internet to the selected target router by remote operations center personnel. Okay, so th- so so again... This implant is transferred remotely, does not require a a local install. After the transfer process is complete, the persistent backdoor will be installed in in the router's boot ROM via an upgrade command. The persistent backdoor will then be activated after a system reboot. Once activated... The ROC, that's the Remote Operations Center, operators will be able to use DNTs, and there they, those guys are again, their hammer mill insertion tool, acronym HIT, to control. <laughs> See, they have the, to have planned that one. <laughs> yeah, right? hit. Hammer hit. mill, the hit. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, to control the, the persistent backdoor as it captures and examines all. All IP packets passing through the host router. Mm-mm. Whoopsie. Mm-mm. And then here's another example of why it ha- can't be coincidence. Headwater is the cover term for the persistent backdoor for Huawei Technologies routers. You're never going to get it. <laughs> I am never going to get it, whatever it's pronounced. PDB has been adopted for use in the joint NSA slash CIA effort to exploit that network equipment. And then here it is. Nice. Nicely done. Thank you. The cover name for this joint project is Turbo Panda. Yeah. So, okay, Panda had to have been chosen, you know, deliberately. Oh, and by the way, the status... On the shelf, ready for deployment. Then, OTS. But rem- I really think these slides are old, though, right? Because the hack, the uh, the hack on the iPhone, is for the second generation iPhone from two thousand eight. 
Yes. So I'm and thinking that are, these slides are roughly 2008 era, right? Yes, and they're all dated 2008. Yeah. So, so we understand that. So this has all been going on and continuing. It's not up to date. Us, it's five years old. This could Right. This and this, the, and which, again, is another reason to think, okay, well, maybe Snowden was, was not the source of this. Right. Um, Remember that there were three Montana things that we that I we we just sort of glanced over mm-hmm, last week: mm-hmm. School Montana, Sierra Montana, and Stucco Montana. Mm-hmm. Those are respectively for the Juniper J, M, and T series routers, and so those are um, those are similar persistent back doors that allow the NSA to get in. So, so I sensei, by the way, a naming. Uh, schema here. Yes. Because those are all SMs. Uh, yep. And in fact, somebody did say that the military has uh, often uses a code name generator that generates not the names, but the two letters. Oh, okay. And then a human will, you know, and the example they gave, uh, this was in the chat room, was Operation Desert Storm was Operation DS. And they added something that actually seemed appropriate, Desert and Storm, but really the uh, designation is DS. So in, in this case, I think the designation is SM, and they distinct they distinguished the different hardware that it was a hack for with different S's. Right, School and it makes storm. it more memorable. And, and oh yeah, and, the human mind loves and, it. It's, it's yep, an image and, le- and, and less ambiguous right. if it's like o- over a, a poor quality communications channel. Yeah, so exactly. Forth. It's like the uh, yeah. phonetic alphabet. Yeah. So loud auto. Here's details on this on a very cool passive uh, bug, audio bug. So Loud Auto says, audio-based RF retro reflector, so that's what they're calling these, provides room audio from targeted space using radar and basic post-processing. Loud Auto's current design maximizes the gain of the microphone. This makes it extremely useful for picking up room audio. It can pick up speech at a standard office volume from over 20 feet away. That is, you know, where this bug is located. It says, parens, note, concealments may reduce this distance. Yeah, if you put it in a box, it's, you know, it's going to be muffled. It uses very little power. And it says approximately 15 microamps at 3 volts. So little, in fact, that battery self-discharge is more of an issue for serviceable lifetime than the power draw from this unit. The simplicity of the design allows the form factor to be tailored for specific operational requirements. All components at COTS, C-O-T-S, and so are non-attributable to NSA, meaning, again, common off the shelf. Room audio is picked up, and I, sh- I should say they, they show a picture of this. It is a little over 16, 30 seconds of an inch in, in maximum dimension. The length of this thing is a little over half an inch. So this is micro size and uses almost no power. So you just tuck this anywhere and let it sit for years. Room audio is picked up by the microphone and converted into an analog electrical signal. This signal is used to pulse position modulate, PPM, a square wave signal running at a preset frequency. 
This square wave is used to turn a FET, a field effect transistor, on and off. When the unit is illuminated with a CW, that's continuous wave, signal from a nearby radar unit, the illuminating signal is amplitude modulated with the PPM square wave. This signal is re-radiated, that is by the bug, where it is picked up by the radar, then processed to recover the room's audio. Processing is currently performed by common off-the-shelf equipment with FM demodulation capability. Then it lists some names and brands. Then it says that Loud Auto is part of the Angry Neighbor family of radar retro reflectors. And indeed, there are many. There is one that can be stuck in a keyboard cable or, or in the keyboard itself. And once again, like all these other ones, it doesn't itself generate a signal. It needs to be, it needs to have a beam illuminate it, a, a radio beam illuminate it, and that is then able to, um, to sense the signal. And notice the other thing about this retro reflective technology. It is, it's necessary to mix the reflected energy with the the incoming energy in order to demodulate this, which means that even if you could passively pick up this reflection, you wouldn't be able to listen to it yourself because you need to have access to the, the to the correct phase of the incoming radar beam in order to perform this signal demodulation. So uh, just, you know, Crazy, really yeah, cool. Just technology. Keep that in mind when you use the uh, Hannah Montana <laughs> technology. <laughs> exactly. Does it strike you that it's also completely possible? You ever read any Graham Greene? He, one of his great stories, "Our Man in Havana," I think it was called, is about a completely innocuous, innocent tailor who is mistaken for a British spy. And they start giving him money, and so he builds a phony network of spies and all of this stuff, pretending to be a British spy, but he's not. He's just a little mousy tailor. It strikes me, this is so novelistic, that it could just be some guy, maybe even within the NSA, made all this up. Remember, this benefits the NSA. I, You know, they always say, oh, this is really bad, because now the bad guys know what we're up to. Well, first of all, this is five years ago, so this is... It seems to me that there, there could be a genuine value to the NSA in the sense that, look, bad guys, we got it covered. We can hear everything. You're screwed. <laughs> Don't even bother. Don't even try because you're screwed. Could yes. very well Just, be the point of all of this. Just buy lottery tickets and hope. Yeah. Because that's the it's only like, way Don't attempt to attack us because yeah. we got stuff in your stuff that you don't even know about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, this is chilling. Um, but, Let's see. But it we, could be completely I, I, I'll, I'll just, made up. I mean, I don't. You I'll, know. Just, I'll just I'll just skim over some more of this because you know we're about done here. Irate monk modifies hard drive firmware. Um, it it provides persistence on desktop and laptop computers by implanting the hard drive firmware to gain execution through master boot record substitution. So it doesn't matter 
If you reformat your drive, if you low-level format your drive, if you clean your master boot record off, because underneath that, the hard drive firmware has decided that it wants the, the master boot record to be what it says it's going to be. This technique supports systems without RAID hardware that boot from a variety of Western Digital, Seagate, Mac Store, and Samsung hard drives. The, support, the supported file systems are FAT, NTFS, EXT3, and UFS. Through remote access or interdiction, United Drake or Straight Bazaar are used in conjunction with Slicker Vicar to upload the hard drive firmware onto the target machine. I think it's Slicker Vicar. Sl- Slicker Vicar. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that works better. Uh, to implant Irate Monk and its payload. It says Perens, the implant installer. Once implanted, Irate Monk's frequency of execution, dropping the payload, is configurable and will occur when the par- target machine powers on. So essentially it sounds like they, they, this United Drake's Straight Bazaar and Slicker Vicar, um, those are PC level, like Windows level exploits that briefly pass through your machine, burrow all the way down into the firmware of your drive and then persistently live from there on. And there ain't much you can do about it. Wow. That's one slick uh, we've, talked about, we've talked about, sir, we talked about the keyboard is another one of these retro, a, key, a keyboard spy retro vector. There, there, I learned something, and that is this go. there's one project called Gopher Set. It's a software implant for GSM subscriber identify module. That's SIM, the, the SIM card, subscriber identify module. This so this is a SIM card. This implant pulls phone book, SMS, and call log information from a target handset and exfiltrates it to a user-defined phone number via SMS. So as I read that, I think, wait a minute, a SIM card is is just data, right? No. Modern SIM cards, phase two plus, I'm reading from the slide, have conveniently, an application program interface known as the SIM Toolkit, or STK. The SIM Toolkit <laughs> has a suite of proactive commands when we that mean, allow... When we say sweet, we mean sweet. <laughs> <laughs> that allow the SIM card itself to issue commands... What? And make, yes, yes. The SIM card itself Who can knew? issue command. I know, and make requests to the handset. Gopher Set uses STK commands to retrieve the requested information and to exfiltrate this data via SMS. After the Gopher Set file is compiled, the program is loaded onto the SIM card using either a USB smart card reader or over-the-air provisioning. In both cases, keys to the card may be required to install the application depending on service provider security configuration. 
So it's actually possible for your SIM card to run a program to query the other memory in your phone and exfiltrate that without your knowledge over SMS. Okay, and why did I grab Monkey Calendar? Aside from the fact that it's a wonderful name. My password. Uh, uh, oh, because it goes a little further. This implant pulls geolocation information from a target handset and exfiltrates it to a user-defined phone number VM SMS. So this gets loaded into your SIM card and it's continually sending out at whatever period they specify your current GPS coordinates to an SMS phone number uh, of their choosing. Wow. Um, they, there is also something called Genesis, which is it is it takes an, a, a standard consumer handset and they've changed the guts to install an SDR, a software-defined radio. So a spy, literally an agent, carrying this innocuous-looking standard cell phone is able to scan, do a complete detailed RF spectrum analysis within this phone in order to record and, and, and perform an analysis on everything going on around them because there is, you know, this phone essentially has been, has been retrofit with, with complete RF analysis capability in something that's the regular size of the handset. And there was one last thing. Ah, cotton mouth. Yes. Which is cotton mouth. Not what you're getting after this <laughs> long recitation. <laughs> is a, it is what I mentioned before is the USB cable that is a, it's a hardware implant. Obviously, you need to go in and swap cables, which will provide a wireless bridge into a target network as well as the ability to load exploit software onto target PCs. So someone makes a midnight visit, swaps USB cables with this thing, and now you've got an there's an RF transceiver for so-called air gap bridging, software persistent capability, in-field reprogrammability, and covert communications with a host software implant over USB. And back again, data network technologies, DNT is involved along with Straight Bazaar. So, yes, this looks like to me it's, it's Straight Bazaar's OS level stuff. So, yes, the NSA, as you said, Leo, the bad guys might as well, you know, read this and just say, well, okay, you know, we're, 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 we're going to go straight. Yeah. No more terrorism. Wow. We give up. We're just going to sell hot dogs in a, the bizarre yeah so again i don't think that edward snowden would have any problem with this this is what we would expect the nsa to do and to have the capabilities we would like them to have as opposed to you know doing wholesale data collection which it looks like you know they may have less of here in the future yeah yeah well, Steve, uh, this is a fun subject, and I'm sure there's a lot more you could have said, but uh, we probably should wrap it up after at the two-hour mark. I um, think so, and I think we've certainly given our listeners a very good sense for, for you know what this technology yeah. is 
and how it works. And yeah. that was our goal for, you know, revisiting NSA Ant, hopefully uh, one final time. Steve Gibson is the explainer-in-chief at GRC.com. That's where you can find 16 kilobit audio versions of this show for the bandwidth impaired. There's even text transcriptions written by an actual human being, uh, one who owns her own farrier or something, uh, Lane Farrieris, uh, and you can get that at GRC.com. Will we do questions next week? Are you going to do a Q&A? Yes, let's do a Q&A. We got, it's been a couple of weeks, so right. we will... Uh, we will entertain questions, by all means. So you can ask a question, grc.com slash feedback. And this doesn't have to be restricted to today's episode. Any t- any question about security or yeah. any topic Steve likes to address, you're welcome potpourri, to leave. Potpourri, a potpourri. That's why we like doing those. Uh, yeah. You can also find full quality audio and video at our website, twit.tv slash sn for security now. But, you know, it's nice if you can watch live. And this is our new time. I should mention we're now on Tuesdays, 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 2100 UTC. If you want to watch live Tuesdays, and we do appreciate it when you come in live and join us in the chat room. But again, you, you can listen anytime. Our goal is just to give it to you any way you want. You, you want it, you got it. Audio, video, black and white color, I don't, whatever you want. Uh, GRC.com is also the home of SpinRite. Let's not forget the world's finest hard drive recovery and maintenance utility. It even works in virtual machines and uh, many other freebies that Steve gives away, including his port check. In fact, let's mention it again, bit.ly slash P-O-R-T. What was the number? 3276 Four. Uh, four. four. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, 32764, bit.ly slash port32764. You've got to have that closed. Yeah, and it's an automatic uh, check. It'll do it all for you. Just, just yeah. Just remember, 865, no, no, that's wrong. 309, <laughs> <laughs> it's in the show notes. Show notes, by the way. Hey, thank you, Steve. Now available on Steve's website as well. He takes his notes, very nice notes this week, by the way. Lots of pictures and so forth. And puts them up on his webpage there at grc.com. Steve, we'll uh, see you next Tuesday. God and the NSA willing. Yes, Leo. Thanks very much. (laughs) Bye-bye.